Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Yes, good morning. It really, 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 really is good to see you this morning. And uh, for those who want to let you know that we are thrilled for those who are here for the first time or maybe the first time in a very long, long time. Uh, We hope that your time with us will be uh, encouraging, uh, challenging, uh, that you'll be uplifted uh, when you leave here. Uh, My name is Donald, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and today it's my privilege to be able to open up God's Word to you this morning. Three weeks ago, three weeks ago, believe it or not, we began this new series called what? Oh, some people have been attending. Very good. We've been looking at individuals from the Bible who really we can identify with because they have issues just like us. You know, they have little, their little quirks just like us. Uh, some of them had their struggles. Some had addictions. Some had some strongholds in their life. Now, I recognize and realize that we don't like to publicly display our flaws. Most of us don't like to do that. Um, But what I've discovered is that you don't have to look too far down deep inside to discover you actually do have a lot of them. In fact, there are some days that go by, I just wanna put an L on my forehead, like loser, right? Or um, or an MFP, uh, most flawed person around. You know, like, that's how I feel some days. And perhaps you do as well. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at what may be considered the most intense conversation that is recorded for us in the New Testament. When you read this story, you can feel the tension in the air. In fact, if you were to walk in on this conversation, you would know that you walked in at the wrong time and you would quickly turn around and tiptoe out. That's how intense the conversation we're going to be looking at this morning. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation that gets tense, oh, maybe gets a, a little heated. You know, conversations can get a little tense at times. Um, I actually don't do very well in tense conversations. You know, sometimes I find myself in a room and you know, the conversation's got a little heated and, and I, I, just, I just pretend it doesn't exist. That's my problem. You know, uh, you're in a room and uh, for instance, you know, we have a fairly large staff here and so of course well, that means we have lots of personalities and it's possible that you could be around a, a table and somebody says something that, ooh, gets a little tense. And so my personality is like to quickly change the subject. Like, ah, uh, I like your new shirt. Or hey, you got a new haircut, really, really nice. Or hey, I'll treat everybody to the Dairy Queen because we know strawberry Sundays make everything better. Right? So I don't always do well. Well, this week I'm reading my Bible and I come across a situation that actually is pretty uh, tense. In fact, we find that Jesus is in the middle of it. Actually, Jesus is the reason for this uh, tense situation. In fact, the tense, it's so tense that you can cut the air with a knife. And, and it seems like the way Jesus handles it in this particular situation, he breaks out and starts telling some stories. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And as you're turning there, let me tell you what is happening. Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem. His time is short. He's been dropping these hints along the way that he's not going to be here much longer. But it doesn't seem like anyone's catching on. 
And there's all these people that are following him because honestly, some of these people had never heard the things that Jesus had said. And he's doing things and saying things that is really blowing their minds. And so you have that group of people who are following Jesus. Then you have another group of people who are following Jesus because they're really investigating who Jesus is. Like, is he who he says he is? And then you have a group of people that are following Jesus because they're looking specifically for flaws. They want to find fault in him. And those group is following Jesus as well. And that brings us right to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners. So we got two groups of people that are here. We have our tax collectors and our sinners, and we got the religious uh, people on the side at a little bit of a distance, kind of evaluating the situation, going, huh, they say he's a prophet of God. And look who he's hanging out with. He's hanging out with tax collectors. He's hanging out with sinners. And he's going to their house to eat with them. No, he has nothing to do with God. God would not act that way. Now, historically, we really don't understand completely uh, what's happening here. Because as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, when we were looking at Zacchaeus, I said tax collectors were known to be those who kind of rob you blind. Um, they worked for Rome, and of course, they would, um, if you had a, a tax bill that was $20, they would charge you $30, and they would pocket the $10. But really, that's not the weight of a tax collector. See, at this time, Rome is ruling the world, and it is a massive empire. It goes all the way from England all the way down to India. So you can imagine trying to govern such a large mass of land. In 2017, it would have its challenge to govern that kind of thing. But in Jesus' day, it would have been almost impossible to govern such a large empire. So how do you overcome such a problem? Well, you make sure that there is a massive military presence everywhere. So how do you pay for a massive military army? You tax the people. You tax the people. And Romans were known to be very brutal. Uh, there are lots of historical records outside of the Bible that talks about how Rome would come in and conquer a city. In fact, one particular story uh, describes where they go in and they ransack the city and, and they kill 20,000 people and they crucify them. And so when you head to this city, people that were going to do business, you know, have their wares with them, maybe pulling a cart, they would walk along and they would see all these corpses hanging. It was a reminder by the Romans, don't you th think about rebelling against us because this will be how you end up. And so these, um, they have this brutal regime. They are raping and stealing and defiling people. Now picture this. This is going on, and your next door neighbor, like your next door neighbor has just purchased the right from Rome to take money from you, to collect the taxes so they can support the army that's in your city, that's oppressing you. And so when we wonder why are people so upset that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors, it's not because the guy pocketed $10 in his pocket. I mean, you could get over that. No, 
It's far worse than that. See, we have nothing in our culture really that we can really look to to get fully, to fully understand what is taking place here. So it would be like a superpower coming in and overtaking Canada and, and causing all kinds of havoc uh, in our life. And, and they're cruel and they're brutal to us. And um, there's no court that we can go to to bring our grievances. There's, there's no way to keep them in check. It is what it is. And they're causing great havoc. And now picture this, someone on your street, on your street, is collecting the money that will help support this regime that is causing so much heartache on you. You're supporting this army that has come in and and raping your wives and raping your daughters and killing your sons and taking everything. Is it no wonder the Pharisees were up in arms to think, "Why why would Jesus hang out with these kind of people? And it's no wonder people were in an uproar when he went to Zacchaeus' house as a tax collector. It also says there are sinners. Again, I don't think we really truly get the significance of that because when we think of sinners, we go, well, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. So there's lots of people like us in these meetings. But really in this day and age, sinners was like a class of people. It would be like the diseased. It'd be like the outcast of society. It will be those of ill repute, like prostitutes. So it's quite a crowd that is formed around Jesus. The deformed, the defiled, the lepers, the hookers of the city. That's who has gathered to hear Jesus speak. And so you got tax collectors, you got sinners, but in verse two it says there's also Pharisees and scribes in the gathering as well. And let me just be honest with you. The Pharisees, really, they're better than you and I. Like, they pray a lot longer than you and I would. They read their Bibles a lot more than you and I do. In fact, to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the Torah. That means you memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like they memorized it. I don't know how many people have ever taken the challenge at the beginning of a new year, you say, you know what, I'm gonna read through the Bible in one year. And you start in January 1st and you read Genesis and it's pretty exciting. You get into Exodus, it's pretty exciting. Leviticus starts not so much, not so exciting. And then you get to Numbers and you wanna slit your wrist. Like you just wanna jump to Matthew, right? These people memorized it. And they're strict. Oh, they're strict. You know, sometimes I think I'm strict with myself. Like, I put all these extra rules. But these guys, I mean, they were so concerned about keeping the Sabbath holy that they actually counted their steps because too many steps would, would look like you're walking and walking would be like working. So, I mean, they're really strict uh, with themselves. And, you know, maybe we think we're pretty good because we get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and kind of read our Bible and have a word of prayer before we go to work. If you were in a conversation with them, they'd go, really? I haven't gone to bed in a week. I've been reading and praying and fasting, right? I mean, I know sometimes we feel pretty good because we got our little fish symbol on the back of our bumper. All of our T-shirts say Jesus on it. Bumper stickers that say real men follow Jesus. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And so you have this group of people listening to Jesus as well. Two groups 
the outcast of society and the religious right, those who look really clean from the outside. And what you have in in these two groups is this group will have nothing to do with this group. This Pharisee would never allow their daughter to ever date somebody from this group. And this group would never allow their sons to play with somebody from this group. And, and this group repels this group. And, and there's nothing that this group sees in this group that actually draws them to God. I mean, really, for a lot of this group, this is the only thing that they know about God and church and experience. That's what they look at. And when they see this, they go, I, I, there's nothing appealing about that. There's nothing that uh, I want from that. And so that's their picture of God. And really, they got a very distorted picture of God, what's, what the Pharisees have painted what, who God is like. Have you ever Googled God? I Googled it this week. This is the first picture that came in my search engine. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but there's really nothing about that picture that says, ooh, I want to get to know that guy. Uh, The next one, the next one that came up, right? Again, does that look like somebody that wants to get to know me? Then there are people that think God looks like this. Morgan Freeman. Uh, Others think he looks like this, right? That he just gives out all kinds of good stuff for us. Let's go back to that, uh, the old guy picture there. Honestly, I think a lot of religious people and a lot of non-religious people think that's what God looks like. An old, grumpy, angry man. Is it no wonder when, if this is your picture of God, that people are trying to win God's favor? Like, I just want him to like me. Like, if I do enough stuff, maybe he'll at least smile on me or or, or give me a smirk. But what about if God looked more like this? The next picture. I love this picture. As Jesus just laughing, sitting on the ground. I mean, as, as dads or granddads, I mean, you can picture that, sitting there, having your grandkids, your kids rolling around in your lap, laughing, enjoying life. See, when you study the life of Jesus, you realize that he turns the idea of what God is like totally upside down. And with all that said, let's continue our story in verse 11. Because Jesus is in this chapter is gonna go on to tell us a story that is so shocking about a father and his two sons. Verse 11. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country. And he sent him to the fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, 
How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I, I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Kind of wonder what was going on people's minds as they're listening to this story. I think perhaps the tax collector is a sinner. I think, they, I think they identify with this young guy. A young guy who's gone and squandered everything away. I think they do. I think maybe the tax collector, I mean the Pharisees and the scribes are like, okay, you give it to him, Jesus. Let's see how this is gonna get rectified. It certainly wasn't uncommon in this day and age for a father to divide his inheritance among his children. I mean, the father has two sons and he divides his inheritance. That doesn't seem that far off. Why is that just such a big deal? The only difference in this culture is the father never gave out his inheritance unless he was on his deathbed. So if a father's doing well and working hard, and there's no signs of sickness. Basically what we see here is unheard of. In this culture, this kind of a question would be unheard of. No son would have the audacity to ask for such a thing. Because you know what the son is saying when he asked for his inheritance early? He's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I just wish you were dead. No, actually, it's worse than that. I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. That's what this... Um, boy is saying to his dad the stuff dad that you have worked for all your life the stuff that you have poured your life into I want it I want you dead so I can have that stuff the normal response the normal response you would think is that the boy will be thrown out of the house I mean, I think that's what the audience is expecting. I think when they hear that story that the son has asked for his inheritance, I believe there would have been a gasp, like, what? Who would ask such a question? And so I believe the audience would totally expect that the father is going to go ballistic, right? I mean, that's what you would expect. You know, the father would shout, you will not get one red penny from me. You were cut off as my son. You were cut off from the family. You were cut off from any inheritance. Get out of my house. I disown you. You have shamed your family. You've shamed your community. And you have become an outcast. I think as Jesus is telling this story, that's the response they're expecting from the father. You know, the father doesn't have to give anything to the son. The son doesn't control the father. The father is over the son. He doesn't have to give him an inheritance. But look at the next part of the story. It's incredible, because in verse 12, it says, and he divided his wealth between them. You just want to go, what? What? Like, that is unheard of. (laughs) Who responds like that? And the father divides his wealth. He divides his life, his life savings, the life that he's built for his family. He divides it. And then it says in verse 13, it says, not many days later, he left. 
Now, in those days, a father couldn't just write a check and say, here you go, son, here's half. No, an inheritance would have been land and, and livestock and sheep and goats and, and cattle. So this means the son really has to liquidate everything to get the cash to be able to leave. Just imagine the father watching his son sell off the father's land. Just imagine selling off part of the life that the father has worked so hard for. And it says it wasn't long before he left. Kind of gives the impression it was a fire sale. Everything's going, just give me an offer. He just wanted to be out of there so bad. He wanted to get as far away from his home and his father as possible. And then as we've just read in that story, look what he does with his inheritance. He squanders it all. Like squanders it all. He has no emergency fund. He has no rainy day fund. <laughs> he is flat broke. He has no reserves. He has no money to make a phone call to ask for help. He is on his own. He's behind in his rent. There's no money to pay his bills. He's penniless. And now he's homeless. And he's on the road to nowhere. He spent his money on wine and women, and for some reason, he didn't even see it coming to an end. Didn't see it. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Bible says, and then a famine strikes. So he's already at rock bottom, but now a famine strikes. This guy is in serious trouble. He has nowhere to turn to, and he can't even blame anyone else but himself. And so desperate times required desperate measures, and so he does the unthinkable for a Jew, the most degrading job for a Jew is to work amongst the swine, and that's what he does. He gets a job working with the swine, and then as we've just said, as we just read there, all of a sudden as he's working with the swine, he has one of those aha moments. What a what am I doing here? And he begins to think about his home, and he recognizes that even my father's servants live better than this. It's, it's an aha moment. He recognizes he's a mess. And he recognizes that I could never be part of the family again. I know that. But, but just maybe, maybe, Dad would hire me on as a servant. Because even my dad's servants live better than I am. Maybe I could start earning enough money to pay him back, perhaps. And so he's going to head home, and he knows there are consequences. He knows there's consequences. He's humiliated his father. He's humiliated his family. He's humiliated the community. And if he comes home, he knows he's going to be ridiculed. He knows he's going to be bullied in the community, even if the community will let him back in. And I believe probably in the audience, people are trying to think, what does it look like to pay back the father? What would that look like? As the audience is listening to the story that Jesus is telling I think that's what they're asking themselves. Prostitutes are wondering, what will the cost be to be reconciled to his dad? And so the son practices his speech. 
He makes the decision to go home, but he's practicing and speaking. Now, Dad, I know I've done wrong, and, and I know I can never be a part of the family. And you just know he's practicing because he wants to make sure he says the right words when he sees his dad. And then we read what has to be one of the most remarkable passages in all the Bible that you will ever read. Honestly, it blows me out of the water when I read it. Look, it's verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Like, that's unbelievable. This young man has caused so much damage to the relationship to his father. (laughs) He has wrecked whatever relationship he's had with his family. He did everything he possibly could to cut the ties. But it says his father was so filled with compassion that he ran. He ran. I mean, this is unheard of. You just picture the the father pulling up his tunic and running to his younger son. Boys ran in this culture, not older men. But look what the father does. He takes on all the shame. He takes on all the humiliation of his son. And my friend, that is scandalous. This would have caused so much talking in the crowd, like what? What? How could, how could a father do that? I like how one pastor put it. It's like he refused to have supper, to eat supper, and he was handed dessert. It's insane. It's insane, actually, what takes place here. Because really, the, father, the son's last word is, give me the money. That's his parting words as he leaves. And he takes the father's money. He squanders the father's money. He belittles the father's name. He mocks the father's name. And then finally, he comes to his senses of the peaks pen and he slithers home you can just imagine what's going through his mind like how should I come should I keep my head way down bowed should I how should I come and in fact when when he sees the father running I'm kind of wondering if he's thinking oh my goodness he's going to beat me up like like he's coming he's going to beat me maybe I should start running the opposite direction as well but the Bible says the father so full of compassion, and he's so gracious, he doesn't even acknowledge the son's speech. Like, like the son is saying, Dad, Dad, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm so, I'm, I'm so sorry, Dad, please just, and it's like he doesn't even acknowledge it. He just runs and grabs his son, full of compassion. And he says, I'll have none of that. What you're saying worry about that I'll have none of it hey bring me my ring (laughs) bring the robe get the barbecue going kill the cow we're gonna have a barbecue tonight hire the best band in the city because we're gonna celebrate tonight no offer of restitution it's it's scandalous this grace of God that is offered to this guy And the father literally takes the weight of the son's offense on him. He handles the offense. He doesn't allow the son to carry the offense. He says, I got this. Like, I got it. 
you're my son. Like, you're my son. Take my ring, take my robe, and we are going to celebrate tonight. Oh, that we could understand God's delight to save people. God celebrates the salvation of his people. You can now see why God, people call God's grace scandalous. You know, maybe, just maybe, you see God as the grumpy old man. You know, maybe you had a very bad father figure in your life. And so every time you hear the word father or dad, you have this very distorted, warped view of what God's like. But God is the kind of father that picks you up, that protects you, and provides for you. And then we come to the part of the story where there's this huge celebration. The son actually becomes the guest of honor. I, I, I can't even, I can't grasp that. Why? Because the son came home. By the way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we didn't want to have anything to do with God, he went ahead and died for us. No matter the mess, listen, no matter the mess, no matter how far you have walked away from God, the Bible tells us that he waits for your return. And when you decide to come home, I love this, he'll run because God's a runner. God's a runner. Here we have this another uh, unbelievable picture of God's grace, another picture demonstrating that God's grace is greater than our sin. I mean, he reeks of, of booze and smokes. I think um, his wild, loose living has aged him. But there's the father still looking. Still looking every day for him. I don't know how many days, weeks, months, years have gone by. But every day it seems the father has been looking because he notices when he comes. You would think that maybe after a little bit of time, he could care less if he ever saw his son again because he shamed him, he has disgraced him. But the father has a heartbeat for his kids to come home. Luke 15 tells us that you haven't gone too far. There is no sin beyond his grace. He says, my grace is for you. Now, even the one who has lived this very clean life is talked about in this story. Because there's the older brother, the guy who's done everything right. He's lived by the rules. He's honored his earthly dad. But he comes back. He's coming out of the field, the Bible says, and he hears, hears music. Like, what, 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 what's going on? And he goes and he asks the servant, what, what's happening at the house? It's, it's not even my birthday. Why is there a celebration? And of course, the servant says, your, your brother's come home. Like, your brother's come home. And your dad is throwing a party for him. And the one who's lived the upright life, 
who looked so good from the outside, who if you looked at him, would, you would not detect a flaw in him because he did it all right. Refuses to go to the party. And the father comes out and pleads with his son, I want you to come in too. I want you to come in and celebrate with us. He's invited to the party. And he doesn't go in. Listen, the more you understand the grace of God, the more you will run towards him. Like we marvel, I marvel at this story when I think that God is looking over the horizon and full of compassion for you. When you really understand that God loves you, you'll run to him. That's the kind of guy he is. And so whether you're the, the person who's lived the wild life, God's grace is extended to you. Whether you're the person who's done it all right, you're still in need of God's grace. Because like the Pharisees in this story, if they looked at the tax collectors and sinners, they did look pretty good. They did look pretty good, actually. We always look good when we choose maybe some loser friend of ours to compare ourselves to. We, we look pretty good. But let me tell you, compared to the holiness of God, nobody will be swaggering in front of God because of how good they are. And the grace of God is extended to both. The one who's gone way off the rails and the one who's been trying to live the straight and narrow. Grace is extended to us today. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning we, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for a, a grace that is far greater than our sin. Whether it's the sin of self-righteousness or just the sin of wild living, Lord, you extend that grace to you. And so in just a moment, we're going to celebrate what you've done for us. We thank you. In Jesus' name.